as a leader is to know who we are, know who God is, and point people's direction in that way. It's not about us, but it's about who we can represent in our life. And any leader can draw people into worship if they lead in the right way and have a purpose and goal in mind. Worship helps you see who you are. As you lift God up, you understand deeper and deeper how much your need is for Him. It helps keep your ego and your ambitions and things like that in check. And it also helps transform you into a more compassionate and loving and kind person. It's a good reminder every single day, am I going to serve my Savior or serve myself? Am I going to worship Him or make this life all about me? How was the Word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the Word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's Word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome to Michael Easley in Context. My name is Hannah Seymour, your co-host, and I'm sitting here with Michael Easley as we are going through the leadership process, looking at the text of Nehemiah and talking about biblical leadership principles and how we practically apply those. Today, we are headed into chapter 12. The wall has been built. It is being dedicated. Dad, you have probably attended... I mean, dozens upon dozens of dedications from building dedications or debt free dedications, baby dedications, weddings, all kinds of celebrations. What is, you know, one of the most memorable dedication you've been a part of and why? Well, it's a little self ingratiating, but it probably was your wedding. (laughs) (laughs) Really? (laughs) We have to tell the backstory, though, because. You didn't. You didn't have me officiate your wedding. <laughs> I didn't because you, <laughs> you told threw me, me out of the bus. <laughs> you told me my entire life <laughs> that you would be glad to officiate, but you didn't have to, and that you would do whatever I wanted. And that is true. And then that is totally. Well, I don't true. know if it was true. <laughs> I find out later that you took took you all to get over it. That <laughs> I didn't have just a little to while, officiate. just a little while. But your rationale was perfect. But what? What's cool about that was people went to a wedding and a worship service broke out. Yeah, it was pretty great. It was interesting because it was beautiful as most all weddings. Not all, <laughs> but most all weddings are very beautiful. <laughs> and, I mean, it was a beautiful setting and everybody's, of course, dressed beautifully. And the music you had selected was great. You had great musicians. It was beautiful sanctuary. It was kind of an overcast day. Right about the time you had finished your vows, I think the two of you had the Lord's Supper. There was some sequence. But you stood up, and the clouds parted. The sun came through this window, and it was like someone put a spotlight on the two of you. And, of course, the wedding dress just... (laughs) And your mom and I are just a wreck. (laughs) It's like, wow, that was a nice touch, Lord. (laughs) The weather pattern changed. But point being, it wasn't about 
the two of you simply getting married. It really was a worshipful experience. And then you had this crazy idea. <laughs> Which you tried really hard to convince as me did, not to as do. As did your father-in-law, as I remember correctly. And what it was it? You wanted what? I wanted all of our bridal party and all of our family to come up on stage with us and lay hands on us and just pray and, and worship. And that's what happened. Yeah. And that's what happened. It was beautiful. And it was and it was a culmination. Your brother in law did a fabulous job of the service and he emphasized again and again, this is what happens when two people live faithfully and wait to get married to the right person, the right compatibility. And it truly was a worshipful experience. So not a dedication of a wall. <laughs> <laughs> not a choir and orchestra in that sense, but it it was a remarkable testimony to God's grace in your life and Tyler's life. And the people there still talk about that wedding mm. as being just an extraordinary thing. And we've had some friends try to copy it. Didn't work so well. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's humbling that folks talk about your wedding after. And again, I think it's what you said. It's because it wasn't about us. It just wasn't. I mean, yes, we got married and it was amazing, but it truly was a service of thanking the Lord for his faithfulness, what he has done, what we know he has promised to do and celebrating with people we love. Which is exactly what we're looking at in chapter 12 of Nehemiah. They're looking back on the attributes of God, who God is, what he's done. And there is a time to celebrate when we understand that. When was the last time you attended a celebration? Maybe it was a political victory. Maybe it was a birth. A new baby was born and you got to hold that little boy or girl. Maybe it was a wedding or an anniversary. Maybe your team won a game. What did you do? How did you celebrate? What was it about? It is interesting to me how and why we celebrate and what we celebrate. A lot of these things are good in the normal passages of life. But when it comes to celebration in a biblical perspective, it's not simply the happy events of life. For example, the culmination of labor. When something is done, a job is completed in Scripture, we'll see celebration. Commitment to follow someone faithfully. When people choose to follow God in the Old Testament, follow Christ when they choose to do that, there's a celebration. The fact of the completed wall in the book of Nehemiah. The nation is now restored. There's a national prestige. There's a new unity. There's celebration when there's a focus on God, not simply on human accomplishments. There's a celebration when we look back on the past and see how God has been faithful. He's protected. He's provided and now we have accomplished this thing, and we remember this, review it, and we celebrate it. There's also a celebration for the future. What will it be like when we're with God in a new eternity, when we're with other believers in Christ? Our identity is aligned, no more division, that we're all one in the body of Christ. And there's a celebration of renewal. And in this case, in the story of Nehemiah, it's the renewal of the wall, a starting over. Now, there are many parallels you could draw in your life, in your local church, your local assembly, in your group of believer friends, a community, a group, a small group you've been a part of. 
Now picking up the story in Nehemiah 12, verse 27. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from area villages. The passage goes on. Verse 31, Then I had the leaders of Judah come to the top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs, the first proceeding to the right of the top of the wall toward the refuse gate. The dedication begins with gladness, calling the Levitical priests and their families to come to Jerusalem to join in the holy city for the celebration. We might compare this to Bernstein being commissioned to write a dedication piece for a symphony hall, and he enlists a great orchestra or great choirs. But this is the house of God. This is the dedication set apart for the temple complex. Interesting, and unfortunately our English Bibles are sometimes cumbersome, but the phrase dedication that occurs twice in this chapter is the word Hanukkah. Now, the Feast of Hanukkah is something quite different and post-biblical. It's a festival that rededicates the temple of Judas of Maccabee in 165 B.C., but the idea is the same. This dedication is setting something aside to honor God, and here it's culminating in the efforts of God's people under Nehemiah's leadership. The dedication is marked by singing, of all things, hymns of thanksgiving. And the instruments are listed as cymbals, harps, and lyres. And there's a lot of debate on what these instruments may or may not have looked like. Uh, more recently, the word lyre, or you may pronounce it lyre sometimes, we've often thought of that being similar to a kind of guitar or bass or cello. But some recent scholarship compares it maybe to a zither. So what we do know is they had period instruments, of course, that were common for them at their time. And they're using instruments, they're using choirs, and they're going to come together for this incredible dedication. For this dedication, the people were to be purified. We're not told how the purification took place, whether it was a sacrificial process or whether they went through the mikvahs, the ritual bathing process. But in any event, they are to be purified before they come before the temple and celebrate. Now, two great choirs are explained in chapter 12, verse 31, all the way through 43. The first choir mentioned in verse 31, and then 38, the second choir proceeded to the left. So what we have are two groups that are walking around counterclockwise and clockwise, and they're going to meet in the middle. These processions would have been spectacular. The parade is on top of a wall. Now, when you go to Israel, because it is God's will for you to go to Israel, there is a section in the old city where you can see Hezekiah's wall. And these walls were not something we think about like a cinder block wall. They were enormous in width. We will speculate on the size and dimensions, but we know we've got these choirs that are marching around. I think we're meant to understand. You remember Tobiah? Earlier in the story of Nehemiah, chapter 4, verse 3, he said a fox would topple the wall. Now we've got two massive choirs marching around the wall, singing, and these walls can readily sustain 
the weight of people in celebrating uh, this great assembly. Verse 35 mentions trumpets, which seem to be in keeping with 1 Chronicles 25, where we have seven priests who are blowing trumpets, and Levi's and others are playing different instruments. They were no longer wielding spears, swords, or bows. There's no more mortar. There's no more moving rocks and putting them in place. The enemy has withdrawn. The wall is strong, and it's secure on both sides. The processions evidently end at their arrival point at the house of God in verse 40. Then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. So did I and half of the officials with me. Just as a reference for us as readers of the story, chapter 12, verse 27 and 31, Nehemiah is taking over the account again. As I read, then I had the leaders. So we've gone from a third person with the story of Ezra and the process now to Nehemiah being the one who's back, let's say, writing the book for the way we are understanding it. Well, in verses 44 to 47, we read of a litany of offerings. This verse 43, on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and the children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. And this is a bright spot in the book. We've seen the wall accomplished halfway through the book, but now there's joy and their celebration, and families have all assembled. Now, in verses 44 to 47, On that day the men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portions required by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who served. For they performed the worship of their God and the service of purification together with the singers and the gatekeepers in accordance with the command of David and of his son Solomon. For in the days of David and Asaph, in ancient times, there were leaders of singers, songs of praise, hymns of thanksgiving to God. So all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah gave portions to the singers and the gatekeepers as each day required. And they set apart and consecrated the portion for the Levites. And the Levites set apart and consecrated portions for the sons of Aaron. This celebration is a massive administrative challenge. All these men have duties to do, bringing these offerings together. Stores, storehouses, and treasuries were guarded locations where these contributions were kept. When you go to Israel, we will take you to the top of Masada. And there you will see a Herodian complex where Herod the Great had built a fortress. But what we point out there and in places like Megiddo, there were large sort of chambers. Think of like large rectangular chambers built out of stone. They were then plastered on the inside and they were warehouses for all kinds of contributions. The same thing is seen here in the record of Nehemiah. These side rooms would be a part of the temple complex. What is important and easy for us to miss as a casual reader, Nehemiah knew the wall, but he knew the law. He understood that 500 years prior to this, David was the one who had outlined these offerings, these portions, and these contributions. And you can read about that 
in First Chronicles chapter 22 to 26. These storage rooms have been overseen by Solomon, and they were part of the temple complex. You've got to have lots of materials, lots of offering, lots of collection, lots of money in order to maintain this complex. The point of all this in verse 45, there they performed the worship of their God. As we began the story of Nehemiah, it's not just building a wall to protect the inhabitants who are going to live inside that city complex. It was to enable worship to be reestablished at the place where God established his name. It was the only place they could worship him in accordance to his word. Now, music was given to the musician Asaph. We know David in the Psalter, of course, writes many songs, but Asaph had a leadership role. Again, think of him as a commissioned Bernstein or someone who writes and orchestrates music. Nehemiah was not a worship leader. (laughs) Nehemiah probably wasn't a singer or one who played an instrument, but he appoints those whose job it was who were skilled and gifted in that arena. In verse 44, it says the people of Judah were pleased, or literally, it gave them joy to, let me paraphrase, give money to support the priests and Levites. Ministering literally means standing before God to serve him, from Deuteronomy 10, verse 8. Well, verse 47 is the summary of chapter 12. All Israel gave portions as each day required. You know, we often hear people talk about a tithe being a tenth, and that is correct. The word tithe means a tenth. But if you're a careful student of the Bible, it was much more than a tenth. Because as Nehemiah lists in verse 44, the contributions for the storehouses, fruits, tithes, to gather them from from the field, the portions required by the law, and it goes on to list all the optional tithes. A good argument could be made that it was north of 20% when you added all the different contributions that Israel gave. And here we read the record, they were pleased. It gave them joy to contribute to this facility. Well, a number of lessons about leaders and the leadership process here and how we might apply these in our different spheres of influence. Uh, First and foremost, I would simply say praise is becoming. Psalm 147, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and praise is becoming. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. The Lord supports the afflicted and brings down the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God with the lyre who covers the heavens with clouds, who provides rain for the earth, who makes grass grow on the mountain and gives the beast its food and the young ravens which to cry. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. He has strengthened the bars of your gates. He's blessed your sons within you. 
He makes peace within your border. He satisfies you with the finest of wheat. He sends forth his commands to the earth. And on the psalm goes. Praise is becoming. Praise is to be new. Praise is to be commemorative. Even in that psalm, we read how he built up Jerusalem, how he gathered the outcast. Remember in Nehemiah, how he petitions people who lived outside the city to come. Some had to be permanent residents inside the walls. It couldn't contain all of Israel, but there had to be a presence there to maintain and care for it. Praise is becoming. Praise is good, and it's a proper response for the believer. For those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ, praise is a choice. Whenever I read the Psalms and we read these declarative statements like Psalm 101, I will give thanks, I will sing to the Lord, I will praise him. That's a choice. It's a declaration. It's the believer's duty. And I don't understand all I know about praise, but I do know something intrinsically happens to the believer when we choose to sing. Not that singing is the only way we worship or praise, but it is a substantial way that we express our gratitude. One of the things I find, and maybe you'll find it true as well, if I'm in sort of a flat affect mood or a little dour and I'm in my car alone, and it's a good reason I sing alone because my children laugh at me when I sing, but uh, I'll sing a song, I'll sing a hymn, a phrase I love, And it's amazing how doing that within a few seconds, moments, uh, my attitude can change. My heart can change. Praise is becoming. Praise is a choice. A good biblical perspective on praise is choosing to worship. Why? Because he deserves our gratitude. Now, elaborate festivals can be hollow. We've perhaps been at a party or a wedding or a baby dedication or whatever you name it, and it just feels a little strange. Maybe it's a little trumped up. Maybe it's a little bit over the top. Maybe it just feels artificial or stayed. Something has to happen in the heart of the believer to have a good biblical perspective about glorifying God. It's not about the quality of our voice, our ability to sing, or even that we would be in a choir or not, or the kind of song we would sing. It is about recognizing who he is, a proper response of glorifying God for all he deserves. Even our Lord, when he goes to Gethsemane, not only prayed, not only did he have a communal meal, but you remember they sang a hymn and they went out. So a first lesson is that praise is becoming. A second one comes from a phrase in chapter 12, verse 46. In the days of David and Asaph in ancient times, there were leaders of singers songs of praise, and hymns of thanksgiving to God. It's not a super rare word, but it's a little bit unusual the way Nehemiah writes this, the hymn of thanksgiving. It's twofold. Number one, it's an acknowledgement of sin. It's confession. So this ties back to what we might think of the National Day of Atonement. The verb was predominantly used for a dedication of God's attributes or work. The heart of praise, then, is declaring God's attributes, God's character, and his works. To simply say thanksgiving falls short of what this phrase really means. Uh, We can think about thanking God for mercy and grace and 
his kindness to us. We might thank a person for holding a door or thanking a person who helps us carry our groceries to our car. This is not just a failure of English language. It's a failure to recognize who this God is. It's better to think about this in terms of blessing as David blesses God in First Chronicles chapter 29. It's an attribution of who he is and what he's done. It also tie that together with confession as declaring God's attributes. So when we're spiritually saying we're declaring who God is, what he's done, the character he has, that begins to be praise that is thankful. A second aspect of this praising God in this way of thanksgiving is we're making a proclamation. Praise normally has Yahweh or his name as the object. It's fascinating and obvious, but we miss it. Only the living can praise God. Isaiah 38, Psalm 6, all through the Bible, only the living can praise God. The heavens can praise God. The nations will praise God. The people of Israel will praise God. They confess God's character. They confess his wondrous works. Praise of Yahweh was public. It was found among the people groups. It was found in assemblies. Now certainly an individual can praise God. And you and I are supposed to do that, obviously. But there's something wonderful, something fantastic when we do it as a body. And that's why word and song are crafted so that we can accompany that with music, with instruments, with voices. And this praise was given in the tabernacle or the temple complex under the direction of the Levites that David had strictly appointed for this ministry. So stepping back again and asking, how do you, in a leadership process, stop to praise God and thank him? There's a time for a celebration. There's a time for a party. But God help us, we don't trivialize it or make it silly or stupid. We're praising the God of eternity. We're praising the sovereign creator and sustainer of our lives. We're praising the one who saved us. We're praising the one who has forgiven us. That praise should be vertical. That praise should glorify God, not man. It should be about him and not us. In Psalm 48, verse 12, we read, Walk about Zion and go around her. Count her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces so that you may tell it to the next generation. For such is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us until death. The beauty and glory of Zion is painted fabulously in Psalm 48 about praising the images of this city, this eternal complex, the towers, the ramparts, the palaces, that you'll be amazed when you go up to Zion, you go up to Jerusalem to worship him. We get the sense that these men and women knew every inch of the wall that they had built. They were able to recall the history of what it was like in its torn down estate. And now it's rebuilt, it's rededicated, it's reestablished, and the people of God can assemble. The whole point of the project was to worship God. And they did it with great celebration and great praise and great sacrifice and a sense of joy. True joy, true celebration, true praise is about him, not about us. Remembering who he is, remembering his attributes, 
his character, his deeds, his works, even among a faithless people, he is worthy of our praise. So, Dad, when talking about this idea of worship, we thought there would be two guys that would be excellent to call up and have this conversation. The first, Carl Cartier, and the second, Bob Welch. But let's start with Carl. Tell us about Carl Cartier. I've known Carl and Heather about nine years now. Carl and Heather lead as a worship team. They have four very energetic little boys. They are a very tight, close-knit family. But uh, as a worship leader and a recording artist, One thing I most appreciate about Carl is when he leads worship, he's worshiping. Mm. And whether it's a small crowd on an evening service or the big burgeoning crowd on a morning service or at some retreat, he has the same radiant smile. It's not an act. It's not trumped up. He's truly worshiping Christ as he leads others. So we wanted to ask Carl, first of all, to define worship as a leader. You know, I think a good working definition of of worship, just in a very general sense, is the attention of the mind and the affection of the heart expressed. I mean, you could actually apply that to any any aspect of life or living or how you feel about anything, but the attention of the mind and the affection of the heart expressed. And, you know, when you're talking about Christian worship, it's things expressed to God. Inviting Him in to our lives is really a response. And, you know, he he captivates the attention of our mind, the affection of our hearts, and and we respond with expression. As we continued our conversation with Carl, I probed him a little bit about how about the rest of us. What does it look like to worship in our context? A lot of times people associate like a worship leader or somebody who worships with singing or things like that, but like there's not a lot of call for like singing accountants and singing engineers. It probably diminishes in some way what you're good at on the other side. I always encourage people to cultivate a life of worship in any kind of work that they do. And really it's around a couple of things. One is, is language and particularly gratitude language. For me, I have always tried to be a person who cultivates gratitude in my life because hardly a person can have a gratitude-filled language and thankfulness as a part of their language and it not be Godward, it not be Christ-focused. You can do that in any setting, in any environment, in any place, you know, no matter what kind of work you do. Cultivating a heart of gratitude, you know, gratitude is core to worship. You're remembering what God has done, and then you're giving him thanks for it. And infusing your language with that kind of perspective uh, refines you into a worshiper. And it's also a model for those people around you. And it seems it seems very simple, and maybe even seems to some like it's an oversimplification, but I have seen that played out in my life over and over and over again. And I, I make a habit as a leader, the people I'm trying to influence, I always ask them, what are you thankful for? What are you thankful for today? And it has a way of orienting their perspective, and reminding them to remember and express how good God's been. In no small way, that's Nehemiah's doing that because, you know, he's he's helped them accomplish this incredible task, and then it's almost a command, <laughs> you will worship, you know. And he, he reminds them of all that God had done historically, and now they're back 
inside a wall, uh, protected and uh, isolated in a sense, so they can worship in the complex where he put his name and the place where he could be worshipped. Anything else when you think about your own, you know, maybe development as a worship leader, when when you're not up front leading worship, how do you worship? Not to beat a dead horse, but um, I, try, I try to cultivate thankfulness in mm-hmm. my life. You know, I, I'm, I'm in a season where I'm, you know, trying to cultivate an even more intentional and purposeful prayer life. And the things that I say in prayer, I try to pray the Psalms when I'm worshiping. I committed a good bit of Psalms to memory and let those be what shape my language. You know, and blessing the Lord, saying how good He is, giving Him thanks for what He's done, asking Him by faith for things. Those are all ways, small ways, of just inviting a worshipful attitude into your life. Because worship helps you see who you are. As you lift God up, you understand deeper and deeper how much your need is for Him. It helps keep your ego and your ambitions and things like that in check. And it also helps transform you into a more compassionate and loving and kind person throughout the course of, of your work. To me, I set an appointment at a time and a place, and I meet with the Lord. And I do that consistently over time. For me, anybody, if I've ever talked to anybody about leading worship or becoming a worshiper, you know, every Christian is a worshiper, every human is a worshiper. But if anything is broken by sin, worship was. It, it's our fellowship and communion with God. And and so when the brokenness of our sin is redeemed by Jesus, we learn the language of worship again, and we learn how to connect with the Lord. But we do it consistently over time, and it accumulates. A life of faith accumulates. And I just encourage people to not feel the pressure to be a great singer or a great orator, but just accumulate time in the Lord's presence by praying to Him, asking Him for things, telling Him how good He is, and let those things be what inform your life as you move forward. I love those final thoughts from Carl on this idea of worship really helps you see who you are, helps you see your need for God, keeps your ego in check, helps transform you into a more compassionate, loving, kind person. I mean, when we're worshiping the God of the universe, hopefully our hearts are being changed. Our our minds are being transformed. Well, the next person that you called up to have this conversation with is Bob Welch. Tell us about Bob. Robert A. Welch and I co-labor together at the Great Emanuel Bible Church in Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. area. Bob, I think, was there close to 30 years uh, and during our time. And the one thing that stands out about Bob more than anything to me was whether it was leading a choir, an orchestra, a quartet, or even just leading the congregation as he stood up in front of people he focused on glorifying God. He focused on not just singing, not just the instruments, but people, we are here to worship God. Mm. And I give him high marks for always pointing a vertical relationship, not this horizontal singing that we can uh, we can get into that. But his point was a vertical relationship with God through worshiping him. So, Bob, one of the issues when we look at the book of Nehemiah is we've got this incredible guy, tough leader with a tender heart, and something you don't hear a lot in leadership. He worships God. How does a leader worship God? Well, I think he should have a name, a focus, a purpose. 
my son Aaron wrote a book about head in the clouds and feet in the mud. Uh, it's about worship, but not church song worship. It was your everyday life, that wherever you're doing it, at work, at play, with your family, uh, in sorrow, in joy, that your life had to emanate what Christ is. And that is probably what we need to do in sharing our faith as a leader, is to know who we are, know who God is, and point people's direction in that way. It's not about us, but it's about who we can represent in our life. And any leader, whether business, uh, whatever it is, can draw people into worship if they lead in the right way and have a purpose and goal in mind. So talk to a businessman, a businesswoman, and maybe they manage 10 people, maybe a couple of hundred. How would you encourage them? Well, first, live your life according to Scripture. Uh, I have some great friends in high places that their life is so scriptural. Uh, you can just watch them and the Scripture being quoted by how they live. And I would encourage anybody to do that. If you're selling lumber at a lumber store, do it well with a smile on your face. Encourage your customers. Well, you better make sure that you're living the life that you're trying to emanate. That's what God wants us to do. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your Father and glorify Him. Well, Carl and Bob had some great thoughts on what it looks like to practically live a life of worship and how that might impact the way that we lead others. But what are your final thoughts, Dad, on this idea of worship being a vital part of the leadership process? Naturally, a leader is going to always feel pressure. There are always going to be demands, expectations, some realistic, most unrealistic. And so recalibrating that is, why am I doing this? Who am I doing this for? Is it all about me? That vertical focus is, to me, the greatest challenge in leadership. It's not about me. It's not about my. It's not about I. It has to be about Christ in your workplace. Engineer, physician, healthcare provider, teacher, whatever your lot, role, chosen profession in life may be, are you, am I, worshiping God? That's our, that's our duty to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, as the Westminster Confession began. It's a good reminder every single day, am I going to serve my Savior or serve myself? Am I going to worship Him or make this life all about me? If you follow Michael on Twitter or Facebook, you will have seen that we've shared close to a hundred different leadership quotes throughout the series. And so the free resource that we are offering this week is a download of all of those quotes in a really nicely put together PDF file. So if you go to michaelincontext.com forward slash leadership process, you'll find that leadership quote resource there as a free download. And we hope that's of help to you. Thanks again for listening, and we will be back next Tuesday. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.